Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Coming up on Roland Martin Unfiltered. Voters in New Hampshire going to the polls. It is primary day. The question is, will Senator Bernie Sanders notch a second consecutive win? Well, first of all, Iowa really don't count. They know what the hell they were doing the first time. Uh, and uh, how will uh, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, Joe Biden, and Klobuchar and the others form? We'll talk about that. Also, rough day for Michael Bloomberg. And audio clip 
posted of him talking about black men being slammed up against the wall, part of stopping the frisk. His campaign not too particularly happy. We'll talk to the brother who actually uncovered this video and his audio. Plus, we'll read for you the statement from Bloomberg himself. Speaking of having to answer questions about criminal justice reform, man, Sonny Hobson really put it to Amy Klobuchar on The View today. Wait until we play that for you. Also, folks, lawmakers are set to vote on D.C. statehood for the first time in 25 years. What is the black agenda for the candidates? We'll talk with Alicia Garza as they unveil the black agenda. Also, the Arkansas school resource officer who choked a black student has been suspended. Folks, got a jam-packed show for you. It's time to bring the funk. I'm Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go. At the polls today, folks, voting for the Democratic presidential candidates, but all the talk today is about Michael Bloomberg, who is not, of course, on the ballot in New Hampshire, but he is certainly on the minds of lots of people. After a newly released audio recording of the former New York City mayor reveals him publicly claiming that cops across the country could just use a Xerox description to identify black men suspected of committing crimes. He also admitted that his stop-and-frisk policy targeted minority kids in minority neighborhoods. Here is that audio. 95% of your murders and murderers and murder victims fit in one MO. You can just take the description Xerox it and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. She's going to be wanting to spend the money for a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in the minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the unintended consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way you get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that, I don't want to get caught, so they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. Folks, this was a statement released today by Mike Bloomberg. First of all, that audio was uncovered by uh, uh, journalist Benjamin Dixon. We'll talk to him in a moment. But here's the statement from Mike Bloomberg. Go to my iPad, please. Uh, February 11th, 2020, President Trump's deleted tweet is the latest example of his endless efforts to divide Americans. I inherited the police practice of stop and frisk 
and as part of our effort to stop gun violence, it was overused. By the time I left office, I cut it back by 95%, but I should have done it faster and sooner. I regret that I had, I regret that and I have apologized. And I have taken responsibility for taking too long to understand the impact it had on black and Latino communities. But this issue and my comments about it do not reflect my commitment to criminal justice reform and racial equity. I believe we need to end mass incarceration and during my tenure, we reduced incarceration by 40% and juvenile confinement by more than 60%. We created the Young Men's Initiative to help young men of color stay on track for success, which President Obama built on to create My Brother's Keeper. And we overhauled a school system that had been neglecting and underfunding schools in black and Latino communities for too long. In contrast, President Trump inherited a country marching towards greater equality and divided us with racist appeals and hateful rhetoric. The challenge of the moment is clear. We must confront this president and do everything we can to defeat him. The president's attack on me clearly reflects his fear over the growing strength of my campaign. Make no mistake, Mr. President, I am not afraid of you and I will not let you bully me or anyone else in America. Between now and November, I will do everything I can to defeat you, whether I am on the ballot or not. Joining us right now, again, is the man who uh, last night around 8 p.m. released uh, this audio recording, got his hand on the transcripts, Benjamin Dixon. He is host of the Benjamin Dixon Show podcast. Benjamin uh, it's interesting because today people have been saying, oh, this guy is a big-time Bernie Sanders supporter, but that doesn't negate, though, the uncovering of the audio. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, when were you um, made aware of this audio and the transcripts? Because the, and, um, and, I'll, and explain to people exactly where it came from. Where was he speaking when this was recorded? Right, so this was 2015 at the Aspen Institute. Um, <clears throat> Bloomberg requested immediately afterwards that this audio, or rather the video, be blocked, according to the Aspen Times. So he knew as soon as he spoke it that it was problematic. So, well, so, so, on... so let me hold you right there. So mm-hmm. the Aspen Institute, typically those sessions are on the record. Mm-hmm. So you're saying after he spoke, then he said, hey, yes. do not put that out? Yes, uh, according to the Aspen Times, he made the request directly of the Aspen Institute, and they their justification was that they usually acquiesce to whatever uh, the guest speaker asked for, and so no video of it was ever recovered. Uh, however, someone in the audience recorded it on their phone surreptitiously. So uh, someone recorded that, and did that did that person reach out to you, or did you? I mean, how did you come across no. this recording? Yeah, actually, Roland, it was online. It's been online for five years. Uh, I was just doing my regular daily research for my podcast. Um, I came across it through a a chain of um, links, just following the information. Um, I read a couple of transcripts that he said some things that were um, damning in terms of the black community and gun rights, and I followed that to the Aspen Times, and then I just continued searching until I found the audio, the hour-long audio that's been on YouTube for five years now. So when you when you hear these other outlets, that there was somebody who was on CNN who was uh, critical of you. This was just basic reporting. Yeah, extremely basic. Uh, there was no conspiracy. There was nothing planned. Right? I mean, it quite literally fell into my lap. But 
you know, it fell into my lap because I did some basic research. Uh, and CNN, um, you know, they called me out about it, um, asking questions about my motivations. My motivations was my daily work that I do on my podcast. And I found this audio, cleaned it up. I did the transcript. I did type up the transcript and put the video together. But those are his words. Um, what do you make of his statement? I saw some of your tweets and you said simply yeah. this statement is not good enough. No, it's, it's simply not good enough because if you listen to what he said at Aspen in 2015, there is a depth. There's He has a deeply held belief in terms of young black men. The way he said it, the way it flowed freely from him, he really believes this. And that's not commensurate with his uh, apology in 2019 in December when he began his presidential campaign or with what he said today, trying to blame it on Donald Trump. Now, I agree, Donald Trump is a preeminent threat, and we need to vote him out of office. Um, but these words were by Michael Bloomberg, not Donald Trump. He apologized in December during an appearance at the church of Pastor A.R. Bernard. Mm -hmm. But as late as January of 2019, he yes. was defending stop and frisk. Absolutely. This is, and, and that's the thing that this statement really reveals, right? It reveals his philo philosophy, what he believes with regards to young black and brown men, but it also reveals his governing principle, right? Instead of addressing the underlying reasons there's crime, instead of exploring it, addressing poverty, he sends in $8 billion worth of police officers, which he says in the fuller, uh, in the fuller clip, $8 billion that they spend a year. And so his governing principle is to send in the forces instead of exploring how we could eradicate crime through eradicating pro uh, um, poverty. And so this is really the type of, type of mentality that I believe he would take to the White House. So um, it's problematic and it doesn't match up with his, um, you know, it's, it's a half-hearted um, apology that he gave us. Um, What's well, also interesting, again, when, again when, you, when, you, when you look at this, um, in terms of in terms of what he said, For, uh, that, and others are also saying that well, we don't know the full context. So the question is this here: um, Will the Aspen Institute release the full speech? They they recorded it, so clearly that was a recording, right? Right. There's a full recording. There is the full 45-minute speech that's on YouTube. Um, I made sure to give the proper context uh, in the clips that I cut up because I'm like anyone else. I get tired of um, uh, videos that are taken out of context. But the context is there. He's explaining the justification for why they arrest young men. They arrest young men because that's where they send all the police. They send all the police there because that's where all the crime is. It's fully in context in terms of the conversation of justifying uh, stop and frisk. So... Here's what's interesting. When I look at this statement here, again, is this is the quote. Um, I inherited the police practice of stop and frisk. By the time I left office, I cut it back 95%. He left office December 31st, 2013. Yet, in August of 2013, a federal judge ruled stop and frisk to be unconstitutional. Right. So he gives the impression in his statement that he made the judgment to pull back stop and frisk because of criticisms when in fact it was a federal judge who declared right. stop and frisk to be unconstitutional. So it wasn't voluntarily him reducing it. It was the right. court saying it's unconstitutional. 
Right. And Roland, as you mentioned, he defended stop and frisk all the way up until the point he decided to run for president. And so now he's on he's running for president. We get it. He's pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into his campaign advertisements all across the country. He's portraying himself as the person who can beat Donald Trump. Um, but we still have to ask the question, can he really beat Donald Trump when a guy with a podcast uh, in an hour was able to pull up this kind of information? Imagine what the GOP is going to do to him when they have a billion dollars behind their campaign against them. Um, he has questions to answer about this. And I think he is able to apologize. I'm not saying he's you know, not redeemable, but the apology does not match up to the depth of his philosophical worldview with regard to young black men that we saw in that video and that audio clip. Here's also what I find to be interesting. And again, this is just, this is just basic um, stuff that we do as journalists. So um, he says, again, he pulls it back um, uh, in terms of by 95 percent. Mm -hmm. Yet, if you actually read the New York Times story, okay, and I'm reading, I'm reading here, and this is for all the people who are listening, I want you and watch, I want you to hear this. Uh, the judge in this case was Shira uh, Scheinlin, okay? Here's a paragraph here that I think is important. Uh, in her 195-page decision, Judge Scheinlin concluded that the stops which soared in number over the last decade as crime continued to decline, demonstrated a widespread disregard for the Fourth Amendment, which protects against unreasonable searches and seizures, seizures by the government, as well as the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. This is the New York Times, folks, and the story is dated August 12, 2013, for folks who are following along. Mayor Michael R. Bloomberg angrily accused the judge of deliberately denying the city, quote, a fair trial, unquote, and said the city would file an appeal. Striking a defiant tone, Mr. Bloomberg said, quote, you're not going to see any change in tactics overnight, unquote. He said he hoped the appeal process would allow the current stop-and-frisk practices to continue through the end of his administration because, quote, I wouldn't want to be responsible for a lot of people dying. Mm. This is on August... This is the story dated August 12th, 2013. Yeah. His yeah. term ends December 2013. So here was a man, again, in his statement... He says, I inherited the police practice of stopping and frisk, right. and as part of our effort to stop gun violence, it was overused. By the time I left office, I cut it back by 95%. Yet, the New York Times is quoting him on, in August of 2013, angrily defending it and saying he wants it to continue. Where's the truth yeah. here? Is it in this new statement or is it in Michael Bloomberg what he said when the judge made her decision? 
Right. You could tell from the, his response to the judge, right, that this is something that was near and dear to him. That's confirmed with the audio that we released. This is something that flows from him as a principled philosophy of what he believes, how he believes, how he looks at young black men, how he looks at young brown men, and particularly how he thinks the government should be used to rectify the situation. This is what he believes, and it sneaks out. And the question is, is to see, he distracted. Donald Trump became a distraction today. That's what Donald Trump is a master of, right? But the real question that Michael Bloomberg needs to answer is, does he still believe these things, or does he repudiate his old statements? The, the thing for me, let, let, let me read some more from the New York Times piece. I just want to get your response. The judge found that for much of the last decade, patrol officers had stopped innocent people without any objective reason to suspect them of wrongdoing. Right. But her criticism went beyond the conduct of police officers. In this 195-page ruling, she wrote this. I also conclude that the city's highest officials have turned a blind eye to the evidence that officers are conducting stops in a racially discriminatory manner, citing statements that Mr. Bloomberg and the police commissioner, Raymond W. Kelly, have made in defending the policy. Yeah. Here is a judge, and then she later says, if officers believe that the behavior described above constitutes furtive movement that justifies a stop, then it is no surprise that stops so rarely produce evidence of criminal activity. She talked about the human toll of these unconstitutional stops, saying that the plaintiffs testified uh, in terms of their feelings, their, their beliefs about the cops. She characterized, according to the Times, she characterized each stop, quote, as a demeaning and humiliating experience. No one should live in fear of being stopped whenever he leaves his home to go about the activities of daily life. Yeah. Again, I'm reading this, and then I'm juxtaposing it to this statement today yeah. after you reveal this audio and... I'm sorry, in real time, we are uh, literally getting an understanding of exactly what Michael Bloomberg thought and felt. Right, right. And, and that's the reason he asked for this video to be blocked, according to the Aspen Times, because he knew this reveal this was too revealing. In a moment of, of improvising, it being extemporaneous in his speech, he revealed who he really was, what he really believes, as well as what you identified in terms of the judge. She was able to use their own words against them. So it's not really enough, this, this apology, this apology tour to become the president of the United States. It's convenient. But the real question is, does he still believe it? Because he has not addressed that yet. His words have betrayed him in that court case, and his words have betrayed him in the Aspen Institute audio. Um, what do you think Michael Bloomberg needs to do next? <laughs> you don't want to ask me that, but he, at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, he needs to give a full-throated apology that reflects a person who has thought as much about the problem he created um, as he thought about his worldview in terms of looking at young black men. Right. He put a lot of thought into how he views black men and he put a lot of thought in terms of how the government should approach those black men. So if he wants to continue in this presidential campaign, he needs to put a whole hell of a lot more thought into his apology than blaming Donald Trump for it. All right. Benjamin Dixon, I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Good work.
Thanks for having me. All right, Dan, I want to bring in my panel right now, folks, uh, to talk about this uh, and some other issues. Joining me, uh, Mustafa Santiago Ali, of course, uh, worked with the Environmental Protection Agency. Glad to have him here. Also, Kelly Bethea, communication strategist, Malik Abdul, Republican strategist. In a moment, folks, I'm going to play uh, a video of uh, Michael Bloomberg again responding, responding in 2013 to what that judge wrote. Mustafa, I want to start with you. Um, clearly, the Bloomberg campaign, clearly they are in damage control. Uh, he has provided these various statements. As I have said uh, repeatedly, uh, that what has to happen here is this, he simply cannot think that this is going to go away. Uh, releasing a statement or releasing commercials is not going to make it go away. Michael Bloomberg, if he wants to be taken seriously, he already spent $350 million. Yep. Michael Bloomberg is going to have to sit down mm -hmm. with black media, black journalists, hold town halls to look black people in the eye and explain why he's saying this now in 2020 when we heard very clearly where he stood in 2013. Mm -hmm. And people are going to have to believe that there's actually been some evolution and some growth and some soul-searching uh, and some repentance uh, for some of the things that have happened in the past. He should come on this show. He should come on other shows and sit down with a significant amount of time uh, and talk about how he has grown, if he has, um, if he expects folks to actually believe him. Yeah, everybody, all these candidates are running around the country, so he's going to have to invest some time in those various states, in communities of color, sitting down. If I was him, it'd be tough. I'd go into some barber shops. I would go to town hall meetings uh, and actually spend the resources to pull folks together. And actually, and I know you're going to barbershops. People are going to light you up uh, for say, some yeah, of the things yeah, that, that you did. But well, <laughs> well, but, 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 I, but I think that the, the reason th this is important, Kelly, is because what we're dealing with is this moment of reckoning. Mm -hmm. What we're dealing with right now is that when we talk about these candidates, whether it's Joe Biden in the 1994 crime bill, mm -hmm. whether it's, uh, and we're going to play in a second, Senator Amy Klobuchar having to deal mm -hmm. with her record as a prosecutor. Pete Buttigieg, when it comes to the criticisms of his role operating as uh, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and police departments and African Americans, they are going to have to right. deal with this moment of reckoning and forget trying to sit here and bring up Donald Trump, right. who has his own issues, and I'm going to deal with that in a second, mm -hmm. uh, but that's what they're going to have to do. I personally do not see how Bloomberg can come back from this effectively, um, mainly because unlike the other candidates, this happened at the end of Bloomberg's term um, in his mayorship. So there's no way for him at this particular point in time to rectify that. So, for example, when you want to talk about Biden's history of criminal reform or Amy Klobuchar's remarks or even uh, Buttigieg's uh, remarks and, and policies, they have um, evidence of, act, of actions that they have done to rectify their wrongs because whatever they did was after those remarks and those bills that came about. With Bloomberg, 
He's on the campaign trail. He's not mayor of New York anymore. There's nothing that he can do outside of an apology campaign to possibly um, change anybody's mind. And right now, after listening to that tape, I don't see the difference between him and 45 putting out full-page ads of the Exonerated Five. Like, that is the exact same type of rhetoric that had 45 you know, being completely biased in the media and whatnot. Like, I, th this was not just a remark that he did. This was not just, you know, a thought in his head. He came up with a strategy at Aspen Institute of perpetuating an already flawed but existing school-to-prison pipeline, stopping frisk procedures, inherently racial bias, that is embedded in police policy. Mm -hmm. Like, he perpetuated all of that in his remarks. So this wasn't just a remark. This wasn't some off-the-hand statement. This was a strategy that he didn't um, come up off of until a court said that he had to. So I don't know how he can come back from this. One of the issues here, um, Melik, is that they increased stopping the frisk as crime was going down. Mm -hmm. You would think that if crime is going down, mm -hmm. you are limiting stop and frisk. That's not what they did. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so many problems that I have with this. Um, one of those is the fact that it, it kind of reminded, well, two things. So when, I, when listening to him, I thought super predator. The other thing that I thought is that it was almost like an all lives matter moment in his statement that he gave. Instead of addressing the comments at the beginning of like I don't know who's advising him. I don't know mm -hmm. so I don't know if this is just his personal ego mm -hmm. or who's advising him. You know, the mayor from DC, you know, probably could have told him something different since she endorsed him. But at the beginning of your statement, mm -hmm. you talk about Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You don't say, hey, I realize that, you know, I'm at a different place. This was at a different time. You don't mention your comments until the end of your statement, and then you follow up with more talking about Donald Trump. The other problem that I have with this is that he made these comments after he was, he was, he was no longer in office. Mm -hmm. So it's not like he was sitting there in the middle of this, right. debating it, having an intellectual conversation, a good give and take. He made this two years after he left office, which meant that he he believed everything that he did while he was in office. Because, and two years after. Yeah, because yeah. you're defending it even after you left office. Yeah. So I kind of agree with Kelly on this. I don't see how he comes back. Yes, there are criticisms that you can make about people who are prosecutors. You know, there were there were criticisms that we had about Kamala Harris. There are criticisms that you can make about Klobuchar. But his comments, I mean, he's talking about throwing... Throw, Throwing people up against the wall yeah, well, two years after he was yeah. in office, after he was no longer in office. But it's, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. So just let me add this real quick, Roland. So, you know, whether it is a billion dollars or a hundred million dollars that was additionally given to the police force mm -hmm. in New York, if you want to eradicate crime, if you want to change the dynamics that are happening, then you have to make investments right. inside yeah. of those communities. Right. Those dollars could have very easily been changed and they would have gotten positive results out of it. And here's the other thing that, that just gets me sometimes. We create this false narrative that it is African-Americans and, and Latinx folks who are the ones who are doing the crime. When I grew up in Appalachia, there was less than 1% people exactly. of color, but there exactly. was all kinds of crime that was happening, mm -hmm. and it was associated with 
poverty, mm -hmm. and if you wanted to address it, you could make change. And he didn't have to go any further than outside of New York and go to upstate New York mm -hmm. to parts where there are very little or very small numbers of people of color where he could find out that there was still significant crime happening where they did not have stop and frisk as their answer to addressing the issue. My other what, issue... What, what, what oh, is... Go ahead. Oh, my other issue um, about this that really, really got to me, but it aside from everything, but the fact that he basically said you can just put it on a piece of paper and, like, yeah. Xerox it. First <laughs> no. of all, yeah. we had a whole thing in Baltimore City um, where uh, that was basically told uh, through the DOJ that you can't do that. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if anybody recalls that con um, consent decree mm -hmm. from DOJ after the Freddie Gray uprising where we found uh, forms, just like what Bloomberg is mm -hmm. talking about in Baltimore City that the uh, police department was using up there for crimes such as this and how how detrimental and damaging that was mm -hmm. to the city. So I can only imagine what it was like in New York, people using those forms, if they were ever used. I, right, right, I right. sincerely uh, believe that they were, whether we find them or not. But it, this, this, again, it was a strategy. It was not a remark. Right. This was a strategy. And I... I it, I'm, I'm speechless. Yeah, this is... Well, let me... Um, um, first of all, let me... The Trump folks obviously jumped on this Donald Trump, retweeted something, but then he deleted that tweet, uh, I guess probably after he got exposed himself uh, because uh, his campaign, Brad Pascal and others are out there, uh, and I wish... We have some issues with my HDMI line here, so uh, I, I want to play this video for you of uh, Brad being on with Dana Perino when she challenged him because this is what Donald Trump said in 2016, quote, I would do stop and frisk. I think you have to. We did it in New York. It worked incredibly well, and you have to be proactive, and, you know, you really help people sort of change their mind automatically. I remember so, that. So the Trump administration... I remember that. ...cannot all of a sudden try... Because they're sitting here trying to amplify this whole thing. Oh, Bloomberg is a racist. Liberals should be outraged what he's had to say. That's like the Klan trying to say to a neo-Nazi... Look at them. Don't look at us. Mm -hmm. But also, Don, Donald Trump has absolutely no room None. to talk about anything about Bloomberg's comments when Donald Trump himself believes in stop and frisk. Mm -hmm. When he said he would, he wanted to implement stop and frisk nationally. After y'all, Trump said this in 2016, 2013. I told you three years earlier, a federal judge ruled stop and frisk unconstitutional. So what Donald Trump said and what Bloomberg also was endorsing was a policy that was declared unconstitutional by a federal judge. Uh, do y'all have the video? Let me know. Y'all have the video uh, from that article uh, in 2013? Um, guys, I need you to pull it up, please. It's a minute and 27, it's a minute and 27 seconds. It's a video of Mike Bloomberg, excuse Mike Bloomberg, defending uh, stop and frisk. Uh, this obviously, folks, uh, and, and the reason this is this is such a, a huge issue because look, uh, Bloomberg lays out his criminal justice plan. He lays he goes to Tulsa, lays out his economic plan. But the problem is when you, as a politician, you don't actually learn from your mistakes. 
There are people who have made a decision. They say, you know what? I made a mistake voting for the Iraq war. Joe Biden has not been pressed in a single debate. Not one debate about the 1994 crime bill. Now, I don't know what the hell the other candidates are doing. Uh, something tells me February 25th, when the debate in Charleston, South Carolina, and I'll be there, something tells me he's going to get asked about 1994 crime bill. But he's been asked before, and he's actually defended it. That's an issue. You've heard other candidates in terms of how they have had to deal with this. In fact, I'm going to play this right now. Uh, here, this, this is uh, Amy Klobuchar. Today, she was on The View, and she was pushed by co-host Sonny Hostin regarding her record as a DA. Watch this. Uh, a Washington Post poll from last month had you with less than 0.5% of African-American support. That's lower than even Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he has 2%. And I've said this often on the show, you need African-American support to become the Democratic nominee. Now, your tough-on-crime approach when you were a county attorney in Minnesota is criticized for disproportionately harming uh, black and, and, and brown uh, people. And when I look at that, that record, you know, you failed to prosecute a single killing by the police during the eight years you headed prosecutions. And there were more than two dozen police-involved killings in that period. That's just one example. How do you defend that record? Okay, well, let's start. Um, I'll lead out to the support, but I want to start with my work as county attorney. Um, we all know there's systematic racism in this criminal justice system. There's no doubt about that. And I worked really hard when I was there, and I'm proud of the work we did to go after white-collar criminals, uh, to use drug court uh, in a big way. We had a very successful drug court, and we actually found a uh, got a 12% decrease in incarceration rates for African Americans. Um, and I also diversified the office, which I think is really, really important. But there is so much more work that we have to do. And that's why when I got to the U.S. Senate, I uh, started working on things like the First Step Act, uh, which we passed, which has uh, decreased uh, the criminal penalties and allowed uh, some nonviolent offenders to get out to prison, get out of prison. I think we have to do that in a bigger way as well. And then as for my support in the African-American community, I've always had strong support in my elections at home. And I have a number of key leaders in the African-American community from Minnesota that have gone and campaigned for me in places like California and Iowa, and that will continue. So my challenge uh, is to get people to know me. Uh, my message of economic opportunity, of investing in our schools, I think that matters. Um, I think that my focus on voting rights, Sonny, I am the leader on the bill to register every kid in this country when they turn 18. I think that is going to matter. I'm the leader on the bill to get rid of gerrymandering, to get rid of voting purges. But, As my but, friend Stacey Abrams, who sh go but ahead. Senator, you know, I think that your, your record as a prosecutor matters as well. And when you campaigned sure. for the Senate, uh, you cited your prosecution of 16-year-old black teenager Mayan Burrell as an example of having been an aggressive prosecutor. And it gives me no pleasure to say this because, as you know, I was a prosecutor as well. I've reviewed the facts of that case, and it is one of the most flawed investigations and prosecutions that I think I have ever seen. Um, when you look at it, you have your homicide detective on tape 
offering informants 500 bucks a piece for names. Um, when I looked at it, I also saw that Mr. Burrell's alibis were, alibi witnesses were not looked at. His, his surveillance tapes were not looked at. I mean, how do you defend something like that to someone like me who is the mother of a black boy, a black teenager? This case would be my worst nightmare. Well, Sonny, I'll start with this. I've been very clear. All of the evidence needs to be immediately reviewed in that case. Uh, the past evidence and also any new evidence that has come forward, I've called for that. And I think you and I both share that background. And I have always believed that a job of a prosecutor is to protect the innocent and convict the guilty. But protect the innocent has to be key. So this case uh, involved an 11-year-old African-American girl uh, who was shot doing her homework at her kitchen table. I got to know uh, her uh, family and I worked with them. Uh, but I would say I think any prosecutor who cares about justice, and I've always been on the side of justice, would say all evidence must be reviewed immediately. And that's what I think has to happen here. Well, you're a U.S. So thank senator. You for bringing it well, up. you're a U.S. senator now. You're a powerful woman. What do you yes. intend to do to right this yes. wrong? Well, I've called for uh, the office and the courts to review the evidence. Uh, that is what we must do in the justice system. I've also worked extensively with the Innocence Project uh, in my previous job, and we reviewed all the serious cases we had that involved DNA evidence. This one didn't, uh, but we involved, uh, reviewed those cases. It had cases. no gun, it had no I DNA evidence, and it had no fingerprints. Are we prosecuting exactly. Amy Exactly, so this today? is a case that must... <laughs> It must be reviewed. Sonny, I think you know that I care so much about justice, and this case must be reviewed. See, perfect example. I mean, none of these people have challenged Amy Klobuchar. Now, they, if folks went after Senator Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. has said nothing to Klobuchar. Uh, as Sonny said, she's barely, she's not even getting 1% among black people. If folks are acting like somehow uh, she can rise, rise, uh, uh, rise to the top here. Uh, but, but this is an issue. Again, if you go back to 2016, the damage the super predators comment had on Hillary Clinton, uh, not just amplified by Russian trolls, but also there were a lot of people who said, look, here was a, you know, here was a problem, but also being defensive about a comment as opposed to being forthright and apologizing. Bloomberg has apologized for the comment. The problem is that he apologized after he'd already decided he was running for president. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. If, if Michael Bloomberg had apologized in, so he leaves off of December 31st, 20, 2013. If Michael Bloomberg had apologized in 2014 mm -hmm. or 15 or 16 yeah. or 17 or 18 or even January 2019, it will be seen differently. But the fact of the matter is, as early, as late as January 2019, Michael Bloomberg was defending stop and frisk. Six years after a federal judge called it unconstitutional. Yeah. Six years after all of the data had been revealed mm -hmm. that it did not have an impact uh, on reducing crime. That 95% of the people who were stopped uh, did not uh, have anything wrong with them. And in fact, crime went down in New York mm -hmm. after stopping, stopping the frisk ended. He still mm -hmm. 
was defending it. Yeah. So there, I'm, I will give Klobuchar the same break that I gave Kamala Harris. People, what people need to understand is that there are very few prosecutors who end up becoming president of the United States for reasons as we're seeing right now. You know, there are a lot of, you probably can go through any prosecutor's case, and I think Sonny was a little, she did probably a little more than I think was necessary. No, nah, she did probably, exactly what was necessary. Because you probably can go through any prosecutor's file mm -hmm. and pick out a case and say this is where it Bamele, was. Bamele, I, in, in, any prosecutor is not running for president. I, and when you run for president, your entire record is there. And so on one hand, you cannot in debate after debate yeah. talk about this and that about criminal justice reform and not own up to your, your own past. And so by pressing her, Sonny did exactly what she was supposed to do because in fact, Sonny did what too many of these debate moderators have not done mm -hmm. and these other journalists have not done is to challenge her. They were very, folk, the same debates when they challenged Senator Kamala Harris, mm -hmm. on her record, Klobuchar was standing on the exact same stage. Mm -hmm. And not a single question was directed towards her about her record as a DA. Yeah, but my point is, is that I, I, I give her a break for the same reasons that I gave Kamala Harris a break, because they're both prosecutors. And so, like, as I said, there are many, you can probably pull anything from any prosecutor's record and say, this is where I think that you flawed, that you were flawed, or you did something that was to the disadvantage of black people. Um, that, that part is actually true. I do think that she needs to be questioned on it. I don't think it's unfair for her to actually be questioned on these things. I just think when it comes to the role of a prosecutor, and even, in fact, even defense attorneys for that matter, but this you know, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Kelly, go ahead. Yeah. yeah, this goes beyond just the questioning of prosecutors. I understand your point that, you know, and I come from law, so I understand prosecutors have a very difficult job. They have to make very difficult decisions on behalf of you know, not just one client, such as the right. defense attorney, but the entire state or whatever right. jurisdiction they're representing. Right. However, what I will say, especially when it comes to, to the debate stage, these moderators are really handling these candidates with kid gloves in, in the sense that they just, it, it's like they are also somehow the PR team for these individual candidates yeah. so that they will look in the, they will look, uh, in the best light mm -hmm. uh, against 45. I believe so, that. I you know, believe so, because, you know, it, it's no question that the Democratic Party wants to defeat 45 for this election. Mm -hmm. So, what are they going to do to try and just have a soft on ramp for that strategy to take place and actually succeed? Don't ask difficult questions because everybody on that stage has something that is going to be debatable. And what's happening right now is. We are now, you know, nearing November, and people need these tough questions asked. And then mm -hmm. what happens? You get something like this on The View, something that should have been asked and answered a year and a half ago when everybody was, you mm -hmm. know, coming on and uh, doing their little soft campaign speeches and stuff like that. This would have been rectified by now. I, I want to play but... this here before I go to Mustafa. I want to play this here. This is what Michael Bloomberg, again, had to say in... August of 2013, after the federal judge declared stop and frisk unconstitutional. That uh, so we can get the audio straight, guys. Let me know when it's ready, okay? Uh, because again, the, the, the reason this is important 
is because when you are in the moment, Mustafa, mm -hmm. you're speaking truthfully. Mm -hmm. You're not, oh, after, you know, I, I reduced it by the end of my term, whatever. No. Michael Bloomberg was adamant. We're going to continue to do this. Right. He's speaking from his heart at that time. There was no communications director. There was no, you know, press release that he was reading from. He was saying how he actually felt about what was, you know, what he was instituting um, and, and what his true views were about the people who this um, enforcement set of actions and policies was focused on. So he was very clear with folks mm -hmm. um, at that time. And, and you know, you know, every time we see somebody run for office, all of a sudden they want to clean it up. Yeah. Be honest about who you are. Let the country see exactly how you feel about these things so they can make the decision can, can that's necessary. Can I just offer no, this very quickly? Um, one of the reasons, to your point about why other candidates may not be doing it, if, you know, I'm sure all of us watch the debates, remember, there even in, I think, the first or second debate and subsequent debates, when, when, the, when the candidates attacked each other, mm -hmm. I remember Kamala Harris had a moment where she was the adult in the room. Well, we shouldn't do this to each other. Our focus is Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Cory Booker had another moment. Our focus should be Donald Trump. We shouldn't be attacking each other. Donald Trump is the one. So there, that actually could be part of the reason Yeah, everybody's having have... a united front on, you know, somebody right. from the Democratic Party right. becoming president as opposed to 45. Yeah. And and low-key, that's an issue because it should be the best candidate representing us as Americans being the president. But, but we don't believe it is 45, and therefore it. it should be somebody else. All right, here's the, uh, again, this is Bloomberg in 2013. The judge made it clear she was not at all interested in the crime reductions here or how we achieve them. In fact, nowhere in her 195-page decision does she mention the historic cuts in crime or the number of lives that have been saved? She ignored the real-world realities of crime, the fact that stops match up with crime statistics, and the fact that our police officers on patrol, the majority of whom are black, Hispanic, or members of other ethnic or racial minorities, make an average about less than one stop a week. And even though the plaintiff's own expert found that about 90% of the stops have been conducted appropriately and lawfully, and another 5% may well have been conducted appropriately and lawfully, the judge still wants to put the NYPD into receivership based on the flimsiness of evidence in a handful of cases. No federal judge has ever imposed a monitor over a city's police department following a civil trial. The Department of, Def of Justice under Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama never, not once, found reason to investigate the NYPD. But one small group of advocates and one judge conducted their own investigation, and it was pretty clear from the start which way it would turn out. Say, no, this was, this was the day the judge made the decision in 13 in her one in, yes in August wow. this New York Times story is dated August 12th 2013 and that was Michael Bloomberg addressing the media chastising a federal judge for her ruling wow. slamming the individuals who filed the lawsuit calling it flimsy evidence when we now know mm -hmm. that without a doubt their evidence was absolutely strong and the only thing flimsy was his defense and the defense of Commissioner Kelly mm -hmm. 
in supporting Stop and Frisk. Mm -hmm. And see, this is, this is why I keep saying, folks, Michael Bloomberg's campaign has a major problem now. <laughs> I mean, not just because uh, of the previous stuff, not, not even just because uh, of this audio that, 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 that Benjamin has, has Dixon released. The problem now is we have to judge how you felt in that very moment and how six years passed and you said six years. So he left office in December uh, 2013. Mm -hmm. So six years and five months went by before he apologizes. Mm. And then says, oh, I was wrong. But you weren't wrong for six years. You were defending it for six years. And, and to listen, to listen, so I'm going to do this here. I need y'all to queue up. I need y'all to queue up the audio uh, that Ben Dixon released. I need you to queue that up, please. I need you to queue that up. And so I'm going to play again for you. I, I mean, so go right back to my iPad right now. Go. The judge made it clear she was not at all interested in the crime reductions here or how we achieve them. In fact, nowhere in her 195-page decision does she mention the historic cuts in crime or the number of lives that have been saved. She ignored the real-world realities of crime, the fact that stops match up with crime statistics, and the fact that our police officers on patrol, the majority of whom are black, Hispanic, or members of other ethnic or racial minorities, make an average about less than one stop a week. And even though the plaintiff's own expert found that about 90% of the stops have been conducted appropriately and lawfully, and another 5% may well have been conducted appropriately and lawfully, the judge still wants to put the NYPD into receivership based on the flimsiness of evidence in a handful of cases. No federal judge has ever imposed a monitor over a city's police department following a civil trial. The Department of, Def of Justice under Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama never not once found reason to investigate the NYPD. But one small group of advocates and one judge conducted their own investigation, and it was pretty clear from the start which way it would turn out. Now, I now want you to play comments. That was August of 2013. Now play Michael Bloomberg at the Aspen Institute in 2015. One MO. You can just take the description, Xerox it, and pass it out to all the cops. They are male minorities, 15 to 25. That's true in New York, it's true in virtually every city. And that's where the real crime is. You've got to get the guns out of the hands of the people that get killed. So you've got to be wondering, spend the money, put a lot of cops in the street, put those cops where the crime is, which means in minority neighborhoods. So this is one of the consequences is people say, oh my God, you are arresting kids for marijuana that are all minorities. Yes, that's true. Why? Because we put all the cops in the minority neighborhoods. Yes, that's true. Why do we do it? Because that's where all the crime is. And the way she get the guns out of the kids' hands is uh, to throw them against the wall and frisk them. And then they start, they say, oh, I don't want that. I don't want to get caught. So they don't bring the gun. They still have a gun, but they leave it at home. Okay, folks, this is a column that John Lott uh, wrote on foxnews.com um, a few hours ago. Now, he's a columnist for foxnews.com, but John Lott is also 
the former chief economist at the United States Sentencing Commission, uh, and also the author of a number of different books. So let me go ahead and walk you through this. So this is what you talked about, that 95, that, that, that 95 percent uh, piece. Uh, he wrote the most recent data at, at the time his comments were made from the 2013 FBI Uniform Crime Report don't line up with a 95 percent figure. He said, according to the FBI data, among murderers whose race we knew, almost 44 percent were white. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. FBI doesn't break down Hispanic numbers. Uh, he said, but if we assume all Hispanic murderers were white, about 23% of murderers were non-Hispanic whites. If you were to Xerox the description that Bloomberg gives, you're going to be falsely identifying a lot of minorities as criminals. Quote, Bloomberg is no more accurate when it comes to the age of murderers. It is true that young people were responsible for a disproportionate share of these crimes, but the numbers were nowhere close to what Bloomberg claims. Just over 28% of murderers were between 13 and 25 years of age. About 35% of 13 to 25-year-olds murderers were white. Again, Bloomberg chastises these activists, mm -hmm. chastises a federal judge, calls, they said they, they, they did their own investigation, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you now look at it and go, oh my God, they were right, and he was completely wrong. Mm -hmm. Again, to me, for Mike Bloomberg to move forward, it is not going to be a statement. He cannot go to Good Morning America. Mm -hmm. He cannot go talk to Robert Roberts. He cannot go talk to Gail King. He can't go talk to Craig Mellon at NBC. Mike Bloomberg is going to have to come talk to black media. I don't even think... Mike, Mike, Mike Bloomberg is going to have to actually do community forums mm -hmm. in front of black people. He cannot... He is not going to be able to go to the safe space mm -hmm. of mainstream media, do a 20 or 30 minute interview, and then go, okay, uh, uh, I, I, I'll finish with that. Because remember the previous interview he did? I forgot which, which one of the networks, where he somebody asked him the question, he went, look, I've already apologized for, for that. And basically, with this whole, oh, yeah. I'm done. I, like, yeah. like, literally, this was like, in, this was, wow. he gave the apology in December, I think it was, I think it was in January, mm -hmm. wow. and his response was, look, I've already apologized for that. Mm -hmm. Essentially, I need you to move on. That ain't gonna fly. Mm -mm. And his campaign, I'm telling you, mm -hmm. if I'm them, I'm preparing him to say, dude, you're gonna have to grovel. I wouldn't even say that. I'm like, dude, your campaign is over. No. I would. It's not because, over. Well, it's not over. My thing is, when it comes to the media, such as, like, such as your platform, such as other predominantly black platforms, I don't see any type of campaign or comm strategy that could reverse this. It's not over. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's, first of all, it's not over. If Joe Biden can be the author of the 1994 crime bill, and he's running for president, but again, it's not with, over. But with Biden, he still had policy after the 1994 crime bill that I understand could that. that. But, 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 Bloomberg but, but, doesn't have but, but, that. But, but, but here's the piece. It's, first of all, it's not over. So there's no... There, his campaign is not over, okay? Now, is he going to take a hit? Yes. The question, though, is how does he now respond, Mustafa, mm -hmm. to where this is going to be the dominant story? Because let's also understand, you got New Hampshire today. You got Nevada coming up, yep. significant Latino population. Yep. You got South Carolina. Okay, he, the next debate, he's on the stage. Mm -hmm. mm. He's in the piece. Yep. So, I'm sure he's probably like, "Damn, why did I have to qualify for the? Why did they change the rules for the debate?" <laughs> so now, he now is going to get hit yep. by the other candidates. It's not going to be front and center, and he is going to have 
to have an explanation. Because mm -hmm. other folks are going to do exactly what I just did. Walk through and hit play, hit play. And there are tons of other comments out there. He's got to put the work in. Uh, and if he's not willing to do it, then his campaign won't be able to garner the support that's necessary. And he needs to just tell the truth on some of this stuff. I mean, we've already unpacked a lot of it, but most of those stops didn't come up with any guns. Mm -hmm. If he really wanted to talk about real crime, there was all kinds of crime happening on Staten Island and Long Island and right there, you know, in the financial district with all them cats who was using cocaine and they yep. never got caught or never got clipped. So I just need him to actually have a real, give us some real talk about where he is today and why he made the choices that he made before. And can Absolutely. I just, can I just say, quick, this, yeah, say this very quickly? Black, if he does, you know, do a, you know, go do the circuit with black media or whatever, black people have to not allow him any wiggle room to say, but Donald Trump is a racist. Mm -hmm. Hold him accountable for his own actions. Don't let him get in front of black media and say, well, you know, but Donald Trump is so bad too. Well, first of all, two, no. things, two things to be true at the same time. I was about to say, but don't let him do it. Don't let him do no, it. No, but, but the point I made earlier was that when he invoked, when he invoked. Trump in his statement, I'm going like, dude, that ain't gonna fly. I mean, like, right. bottom line is, yep. he, he, see, see, if, so the, so the issue that I had, the issue that I have is an anatomy of the statement. Mm -hmm. You begin your statement by invoking Trump deleting a tweet, not accepting responsibility. Now, so, so let me just, so for the, for the people, for the people who are on his campaign, let, let me just uh, say right now, that's bullshit. Okay. That's bullshit. For anybody on the comms team, on the Michael Bloomberg team, for any African Americans on his team, somebody should have said, yo, that's some bullshit. Okay? I'm just going to be straight up. Why am I saying that? Because the issue here is not Donald Trump deleting a tweet. Nope. The issue is what you said. And so it's a cute game in terms of uh, trying to move to that uh, whole point here. Like the opening line, go to my iPad. President Trump's deleted tweet is the latest example of his endless efforts to divide Americans. No, sorry, Michael Bloomberg, that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. that, that line should be completely deleted. Mm -hmm. Now, if you wanted to start, you should have started with, I inherited the police practice of stop and frisk. That's what you should have started with. And then, when you go to the bottom, okay? So, just so, just so, just so we're clear here, in terms of how you unpack this, if you remove the first sentence and you go from I inherited to the black and Latino communities, Y'all, he literally spent more words in this statement trying to explain other stuff. Because if you go to the second paragraph, now it's all about his commitment to criminal justice. Now you go to, then, then basically saying he gave the idea for my brother's keeper to, to Obama. Obama. Right. He literally says, <laughs> we created the Young Men's Initiative to help young men of color stay on track for success, which President Obama built on to create My Brother's Keeper. But then the last paragraph, in contrast, Trump, this, 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 I'll take, take you on. <laughs> no. 
You have to deal with what you said. Obama's on vacation, like, why? And so, trying to why? sit here and now, oh, you know, Trump this, Trump that, uh, I've done this. No, the reality, and, 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 and this is the thing that, 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 that is important. We cannot live in an America where women who are talking about the Me Too movement talk about the trauma mm -hmm. that they have had to endure from men catcalling, mm -hmm. from men making sexually suggestive comments in the workplace, from men physically sexually assaulting women, whether in the workplace, at school, at home. We got a whole lot. We cannot talk about soldiers suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and what they're enduring on the battlefield around the world. The, both of those cannot be ignored and are fundamentally and critically important. But what we also must deal with is the trauma inflicted on black people and brown people for simply walking while black, mm -hmm. for simply walking while brown. We cannot ignore the trauma, the fear that exists among black and brown people who were the victims of a Xerox copy hmm. thrown up against walls, searched, accosted, found nothing. Now y'all can go. Mm -hmm. Because if you understand the trauma of black people since 1619, the trauma of being kidnapped in your homeland. The trauma of being in the slave, the hole of a slave ship. The trauma of being sold. The trauma of seeing your family beaten and separated. The trauma of seeing individuals having their feet, uh, feet cut off who tried to run away. The trauma of individuals having to pick cotton and beaten and whipped. The trauma of black kids having to grow up and seeing mama and daddy have to step into the street when it's muddy when somebody white comes by. The trauma of looking at somebody white and you can't look them in the eyes. The trauma of being accused of sleeping with a white woman. If you want to understand the trauma, you go down to the lynching memorial that's in Montgomery, Alabama. You understand the trauma of Jim Crow. The trauma of just being black and you get stopped. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the trauma that Michael Bloomberg has to understand. Mm -hmm. That what was unleashed upon black people in New York City and brown people, and let me add, New York City has the largest concentration of black people in the United States. So Michael Bloomberg, I don't care about your young men's initiative. <laughs> because Michael Bloomberg, there probably was a young black man
who was going to school, who was doing the right thing, who got stopped. And that one encounter completely changed the course of his life. We don't know what that young man did in the classroom the next day. We don't know if he tuned out. We don't know if he then began to lash out at authority because of how he was treated by a cop. See, Michael Bloomberg, that's what you don't seem to recognize that was unleashed on African Americans. Do I believe the Michael Bloomberg campaign is over? No. But what I will say is this. This statement alone is simply insufficient. And African Americans across this country, Latinos across this country, black parents, black mothers, black fathers, grandparents, aunts, and uncles deserve a conversation so we can understand, Mike Bloomberg, if you have actually changed. Why am I saying that? Because right now in the White House, Mike Bloomberg, is a man who took out full-page ads saying that the Central Park Five young men should get the death penalty. And Mike Bloomberg, you fought those same five young men from getting a settlement in their case. In fact, Mike Bloomberg, you are going to have to reckon with the fact that you would not settle. And the only reason the case of the exonerated five was settled for $40 million was because you left the mayor's office. And it was Bill de Blasio, the newly elected mayor of the city of New York, who in 2014 approved the settlement in that case. So Michael Bloomberg, we wanna see you stand up and say and call for the release of all of the depositions taken in the Central Park Five case. We want to see what was stated in those depositions when it came to that case. Because you, you, Michael Bloomberg, cannot in a statement criticize Donald Trump when on this very issue, you and Donald Trump were boozing buddies. You defended stop and frisk. Donald Trump wanted stop and frisk. Donald Trump doubled down on the Central Park Five, you fought their settlement. And you can say all these other different things about how I've done this and done that. That is no different than a man who beats his wife and then brings her flowers and buys her gifts. You are going to have to speak to this issue because right now there's a liar sitting in the Oval Office and we've got to know for real whether or not 
you have truly learned from your mistakes or if you're simply making the political calculus and you hope that our disdain for Trump is strong enough to overlook what you said and did. Go into a break when we come back. We'll talk with Alicia Garza about the Black Agenda. Next to Roller Martin Unfiltered. You want to check out Roller Martin Unfiltered? YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. There's only one daily digital show out here that keeps it black and keep it real. It's Roller Martin Unfiltered. See that name right there? Roller Martin Unfiltered. Like, share, subscribe to our YouTube channel. That's YouTube.com forward slash Roland S. Martin. And don't forget to turn on your notifications so when we go live, you'll know it. A life is not more important than others, except in the impact it has on other lives. American professional baseball player, Jackie Robinson. All right, folks, are you looking to enhance your leadership skills? Are you trying to enhance those of your team as well? Well, if so, you should join Dr. Reverend Dr. Jackie Hood Martin for uh, her newest online course, and mastermind group, How Successful People Think. She'll be your guide as you learn timeless leadership principles to apply to daily living. The offer expires February 28th. To register to, or start the course online, go to www.livetolead.com forward slash Leesburg. That's www.live, L-I-V-E, the number two, lead, L-E-A-D dot com forward slash Leesburg. All right, folks, we talked about uh, this campaign. We, uh, the issues that are important to African-Americans are critically important. Uh, and there are a lot of people out there who have all kinds of different ideas, uh, what, they should, what they should talk about. Well, uh, 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 Alicia Garza and her group, they've actually been working on doing this survey. We had her on before uh, talking about uh, the black agenda. She's, of course, a principal at the Black Features Lab. And so they released this report on... Uh, Monday, and, and, it's, and it's really interesting where, because it lays out exactly uh, what it is in terms of the issues uh, that people care about, uh, the, the things that matter uh, to them as well. And so, uh, if we pull it up, I want to pull it up uh, as well because, again, it's, it's a really, really uh, great and thorough 30-page report that is called The Black Agenda for 2020. Uh, and, uh, again, what I love about it is that they, they spent time talking to 30,000 people across the country, uh, black people. Now, this is one of those deals where, you know, like it always happens, uh, you know, they'll like, okay, you know, you talk to a different group and you get other folks' views about what we care about. No, it's African-Americans as well. Go to my iPad, please. And so this is, uh, of course, what it looks like here. It's called the Black Agenda 2020 Black to the Future Action Fund. And in this particular piece here, uh, they talk about, again, uh, make black people powerful in the economy, our society, our democracy, our communities, our families, and the legal system as well. And so as you go through uh, this report, uh, Black Agenda 2020 translates the black census results into a policy platform that educates elected officials, policymakers, and legislators and challenges them to take positions that are beneficial to our communities. And we go through here. Um, here's what's interesting. 52% of black census respondents believe that politicians don't care about black people. Uh, also, uh, you go on here, black people in this survey said race matters. Government must be held accountable. The black agenda is also a progressive agenda. 
Uh, and so we can go through here. And so some of the things that were stated, remove policies that lock us out of good jobs and instead invest in the health and wealth of our communities, confront those who conspire to steal our votes, and finally build the democracy that is promised to us all, challenge the policies and practices that leave us living sick and dying younger, and deliver the care we need to live long and live well, reject the toxic culture of white nationalism by calling it out at every opportunity and in front of every audience, act on the climate crisis as a national priority before more of our community, uh, then also um, uh, end the use of incarceration to solve the problems of migration, poverty, and divestment, and return millions of us to our families and communities. Kelly, so looking at this here, uh, what this lays out again are clear policy issues that need to be implemented. Your thoughts? I mean... I, I, I know some of my friends and I joke about having a black agenda. Um, but this is actually legitimate. I think that these are things that not only black people need, but we all need, but specifically black people, because for so long we've been ignored. For so long we've been looked aside or just used as the token for other issues or for uh, white people to just kind of make their way through our issues. And But what, what do you make of it specifically when, 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 when they laid out, they said, jobs, dealing with voter suppression, and then also dealing with our health, white nationalism, uh, as well as climate uh, crisis as well. I mean, they're very specific in what they're laying out. No, I, I don't see what's wrong with it. I would add more so economic development. Um, that was number one. So number one, that's the first thing I read, remove policies that lock us out of good jobs and instead invest in the health and wealth of our communities. And that was one of the things. Well, when I see that, I, when you said jobs, I think more along the lines of getting a job. I'm talking No, about no, no. They were, they were talking about black entrepreneurs as well. Oh, okay. Well, then... I don't see anything wrong with it. I think that that's very solid, very thorough. Um, I would like to see if they have, you know, like a play-by-play -play as to exactly what they want. Mm, they do. Want, they do. Then Mustafa, in fact, they say 86% mm -hmm. of black census respondents believe, go to my iPad, it is the role of the government to solve economic problems and bridge the gap between the rich and the poor. 79% favor expanding and increasing government aid for people who need it. Now, of course, uh, Republicans will jump up and say, oh, that's not the government's job, but if you actually look at this nation in its history, even present day, the role the government plays mm -hmm. in the creation of wealth in the private sector, the private sector, Elizabeth Warren has to say this all the time, right. the private sector, you ain't get there all by yourself. At all. Exactly. Exactly. This is a holistic agenda, which is exactly what we need. It talks about the policies and, and really also talks about our tax dollars and how we should be focusing those to actually help to make real change happen inside of our communities, to spur growth, to hold people accountable, um, and along, of course, with uh, our vote and, and tying all that together. So we know if we vote, um, then we can redirect the resources to the places that they need to go and we can make sure that the policies are in place and we can also make sure that those, um, you know, who are elected officials understand that there is an agenda that they have to meet and we will hold them accountable. Uh, Malik, black citizens respondents think the government should pay reparations to African Americans for its role in the slave trade and history of discrimination. Also, 90% of black citizens respondents view wages too low to support a family as a problem in the community. 85% support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, something Donald Trump opposes and most Republicans as well. Clearly, black folks are saying, no, that, that should be uh, on this agenda. Well, for the most part, most of what I heard, um, they're pretty much, you know, in line with what we hear with candidates, period, when they run for office. So, you know, maybe give or take a one or two, but for the most part, what we heard is something that 
most campaigns are, are part of most campaigns platform. Yeah, but one thing you have here in the Landrum Griffin Act restrictions on the ability of unions to hire some formerly incarcerated people. No, I don't hear many candidates talking about that. No, that's also actually established wage and standard boards as a mechanism to facilitate worker organizing and raise labor standards. Well, I, I don't know about this far as the, the the union piece of that, but I do know even the administration is focusing on with their second chance hiring program on employing incarcerated individuals, you know, formerly incarcerated individuals. One of the things, and I may have missed it, but I didn't hear an education component mm -hmm. in there. I don't know if it it's, was no, a, it's in it's here. In, in okay. fact, also, you have a housing issue, Mustafa. Yep. Passed the American Housing and Economic Mobility Act, uh, which increases housing affordability by controlling rent and home prices, incentivize local governments to reduce land use restrictions, and drive up the cost of new home construction. Well, what, what did they say about education? Right here, invest in K-12 education. Uh, they have here mandate that education funding at the federal, state, and local levels flow equitably to school districts, dismantle the school to prison pipeline by eliminating zero tolerance, tolerance policies and limiting the presence uh, of uh, police in schools. Also, eliminate the growing number of policies that require registration and surveillance of students who have received mental health care as part of K-12 school enrollment and require schools to stop using restraints and seclusion on students with disabilities. Yeah, I mean, so that, that yeah, I was worried about the education piece. Well, it's in here, plus they also have and in a whole section with college as well. Yeah, I think that's actually a good thing. I don't think, you know, I, I still don't think it's out of line with what we normally hear as far as, it, you know, it's good this to have. This is more comprehensive. Yeah, well, first of all, when you say politicians, you mean Democratic politicians, not Republican. Well, there, there are things in there that even Donald Trump is focusing on, this, which is why I mentioned the second, hands, second chance hiring. So that, no, that not every single bullet point is something that Republicans not are focused on. But if you're talking about not things as far as economic development, if you're talking about education, if you're talking about um, even investment, you know, entrepreneurship, those are things that Republicans generally talk about. Right, right, so hold, I don't no, think no, that no, that's... But they're a, saying they don't talk about actually do it. No, I, 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 I totally agree. You know, if somebody say, well, what's the black agenda? You should be able to hand them a, a, a binder and say, here, well, there you go. Mustafa. Well, well, the thing that we have to also focus on is that they shared that there's a significant portion of the African-American population who currently does not trust uh, politicians, mm -hmm. federal, state, uh, and probably reason. on down. <laughs> so, therefore, we need to make sure that these politicians are better in alignment with what African-Americans are actually asking for. And, and that's how we change the dynamic. Mm -hmm. What's unfortunate is that a lot of, if not all of what's on this agenda, every American needs. Well, yeah. Every American needs this. And it's a shame that we constantly, as black people, have to be at the forefront of putting our needs out there as if nobody else needs it. Well, black um, people are trying to teach America how to be Americans for, uh, for forever. Anyway. It, it, so this it's still frustrating. This ain't black people. <laughs> right. So, it's know, still frustrating. There you go. Republicans tried to change a D.C. statehood bill to wipe out gun laws and punish any doctor in the proposed new state who failed to provide medical care to a child born alive after an attempted abortion. Mm. The amendments came during a House Committee on Oversight and Reform Committee meeting to consider a bill that would make D.C. the 51st state. Here's some of what took place in the hearing today. Along with the citizens of the District of Columbia, I greatly appreciate the hearing we held last September and this markup today appropriately the same week we celebrate the birthdays of President Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, two champions of the rights uh, of, the, of the residents of the District of Columbia. 
This has been a historic year for D.C. statehood, culminating in today's markup. When I introduced the bill on the first day of Congress, I did so with a record 155 original co-sponsors. Today, the bill has a record 223 co-sponsors, enough to pass in the House with co-sponsors alone. Moreover, we also have a record 35 co-sponsors of the Senate version of the bill, and we are especially grateful to its sponsor, Senator Tom Copper. Over 100 national organizations with strong records of getting bills passed in the Senate are already preparing to help us take the fight to the Senate. Last March, the House passed H.R. 1, Representative Sawbanes for the People Act, which contained extensive findings supporting D.C. statehood, marking the first time in American history either chamber of Congress has endorsed D.C. statehood. Polls show that most Americans think the residents of the nation's capital have the same rights they enjoy. Even some members of Congress may not know that the district ranks first in the nation in federal taxes paid to support the national government, making the residents of, that, of the nation's capital the only full tax paying Americans not treated as equal citizens. The district pays more in federal taxes in 22 states. DC has a higher per capita personal in, and gross national pro product than any state. The district's unequal status can be rectified only by our statehood build the district's local economy has become one of the strongest in the nations. Today, the district is more than equal to states financially. Its $15.5 billion budget is larger than the budget of 12 states. For two decades, the district has had balanced budgets and clean audit opinions. Moody Investor Service has given the district's general obligation bonds its highest rating of AAA. Its per capita personal income expenditures are higher than those of any state, and its total personal consumption expenditures are greater than those of seven states. The population of the district continues to grow. A year ago, passing 700,000 for the first time since 1975, the population of the, the, the district is larger than that of Wyoming and Vermont and is in league with seven states that had a population under one million in the last census. D.C. residents have fought and died in, in every American war, including the war that led to the creation of the nation, the Revolutionary War. The district suffered more casualties than a number of states during the wars of the 20, 20th century, but I could not vote on final passage of the National Defense Authorization Act last year. The veterans of the nation's capital have helped get voting rights for people throughout the world, but continue to come home without those same rights or even the same rights as veterans with whom they served. Our statehood bill is clearly constitutional. Congress has the authority to make Washington Douglas Com Commonwealth a state under Article 4, Section 3, Clause 1. Its power to admit new states to the Union combined with its Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17 power over the seat of government. The Congressional Research Service and even conservative legal scholar uh, and practitioner Viet Dinh, who served in the Department of Justice during the George W. Bush administration, have issued expert opinions that H.R. 51 is constitutional. Congress can carve out areas where D.C. residents live 
as the 51st state and reserve other areas as the national capital. The Congress has two choices. It can continue to exercise undemocratic authority over 700,000 American citizens who live in the nation's capital, treating them, in the words of Frederick Douglass, as aliens, not citizens, but subjects. Or it can live up to the nation's promise and ideals in taxation without representation and pass the Washington, D.C. Admission Act. Mustafa, it's about time. This makes no sense. D.C. should be a 51st state. Most definitely. Residents of the Washington, uh, of, of the District of Columbia, are seen as less than full citizens. We're supposed to have one man or one woman and one vote, and it's time for the District of Columbia to actually have that. You used to have the uh, the plates uh, on the uh, mm -hmm. presidential mm -hmm. limousine, Malik. Uh, Trump took them off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm as a longtime resident of the District of Columbia, I am definitely for statehood. And so, so that people understand what having a non-voting member of Congress, non-voting representative in Congress means, is that we're pretty much similar to Guam. Um, our representative is the same as Guam. Now, they cannot vote on a full, on full, on legislation in front of the full house. Mm -hmm. If they are a member of a committee, they can vote in that committee. They can introduce legislation in that committee. But once it goes to the full house, so Eleanor um, um, Holmes, -Norton. Holmes Norton, who we just saw, she will not be able to vote for if, if this passes in the House, mm -hmm. she will not be able to vote for it in the full House. Mm -hmm. And so that's essentially what it means. You know, I'm one of those, you know, we had a taxation, we've had so many, um, like, um, uh, so many things on taxes, you know, um, taxation without representation. So I, I am 100% for the District of Columbia having a voting member of Congress where we're actually represented and playing, paying plenty of taxes. Yeah, yeah absolutely for it. And we don't have a vote, uh, we don't have a voice in the Senate. No, no we don't. Yeah, none at, at all. all. Yeah, none at, at all. all. Yeah, because those non-voting members, that they, they don't apply to the Senate. It's just the House right. of Representatives. Right. Kelly. Now, it's incredibly frustrating. I grew up here in D.C. I live here now in D.C. And it goes beyond just having representation in Congress. It, it's as as granular as our municipal government as well, because there are things that um, we have to go to Congress for that any other state would not necessarily have to. Like, we have right. a surplus yeah. of what, like almost $300 million yeah. that we cannot touch yeah. without congressional approval that, mm -hmm. mind you, our own Congresswoman can't even vote for because right. of the lack of right. representation. It's absolutely ridiculous. Our laws are contrived and complicated for no reason. And we are citizens, too, and we mm -hmm. need to start, you know, actually being citizens. We need to start enacting like it. All right, folks, the bill has been passed and now heads to the House. All right, folks, Jake Perry, a Camden Fairview High School resource officer, has been suspended after this video was posted of him choking a black student in Arkansas. Police Department Chief Boyd Woody said he would not tolerate this kind of misconduct from his officers. Look, we were just talking about this here with the, in the, uh, the the black agenda demands uh, in that census project. Look, get these cops out of schools. Right. 
Yeah, so I I didn't I, I I hate watching videos like that and well because was he suspended or fired? Which which one was it? Suspended. suspended. Yeah, suspended or fired. You know, there I, I don't see any reason. Kind of reminds me of Eric Garner. You know, the choke, the grabbing mm -hmm. around the neck. I mean, that's a neck, and there is an actual trachea. There, a breathe you breathe and all of that. Um, I I to detain any person by grabbing them by neck, especially a child. It's just kind of unconscionable. I, I doubt that, I don't know if that's, the, if that's policy in New Jersey or not. I can't imagine that it is. Since Putting they a baby in him. a chokehold? Yes, no. Yes, since they actually suspended him, I doubt that it is. But any of those type of policies where you, we're restraining people, especially children, by, hold, by grabbing them by their neck. You remember Eric Garner said, I can't breathe. Right. I remember. That young man, that boy, went limp on video. Like, you saw that. And I, I keep saying this on the... You cannot be a, an employee such that you are representing the public and your entire job is to protect the public if you were going to do something like that to a child. And we didn't and see I, what happened before then. It but doesn't it matter. No, my point is that we didn't see what happened before then, but right there, what we're looking at right now, he wasn't a threat. But it doesn't no, matter. He wasn't even a threat. If he was a threat, he's still a minor. And there are tactics at play for police officers, security, anybody to apprehend a minor such that you're not going to kill him in the process. Mm -hmm. This is attempted murder, because I know that he knows another way to apprehend a student, and that's not one of them. He wasn't apprehending him. I don't know. He, so, he was just grabbing him by the neck. Just grabbing him by the neck. I, it's disgusting. Here's the reality, that chokeholds are illegal in a number of municipalities across mm. our country. So they should definitely not be happening inside of our schools, mm -hmm. and we need to stop having these military-style situations set up inside of schools. For children. For children. Yeah. They're children. Got a fact to this, folks. Today in Chicago, a special prosecutor has indicted Jesse Smollett, uh, saying that he made up uh, an attack that took place there. He has to report to court by February 24th. Uh, Mustafa, I want to start with you. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you talk about what they did here. First of all, special prosecutor Kim Fox, of course, is the elected district attorney. They chose not to prosecute him. Mm -hmm. But this prosecutor essentially used the exact same evidence as before uh, to go ahead and indict him. But we also know now you're dealing with, of course, you had the police chief who came out, uh, mm -hmm. you know, loud and thunderous. He since quit. Resigned, got fired actually by by the mayor uh, because of his old issue. What well, he's having an affair, got drunk or whatever the hell, was taking medicine or whatever. Uh, and so you got to ask yourself the question: uh, Can you actually even get a fair hearing I, as a result? Can Justice Smollett get a fair hearing as a result of this? I don't think so. Uh, I think it'd be very difficult considering all of the officials who've come out and said certain things and and, and all the attention that they've placed on this case. So I think it would be very difficult for him to actually get a fair hearing. Um, Kim Fox gave her reasons why she um, chose to dispose of this case. Here's what I might find to be interesting. Her deal was like, even if we convicted him, he, he, he wouldn't go to jail. And so what ends up happening if they I'm go forward with this and then they still say, okay, community service? I don't... Like, you're going to... Why are they still pursuing this at all? Like, this is such a waste of taxpayer dollars for the citizens of Chicago. How many other problems do they have where that money could be put to better use? Yeah. I, 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 I didn't... I don't understand. 
I, I just do not understand why they are going after this man. And also, this comes down a few weeks before Kim Fox's primary right. in March. Mm. So let, let, just let me add something Go real ahead. quick. You find, over time, people trying to build their careers off the names of mm -hmm. celebrity cases. Mm -hmm. So we have to ask the question if this is another example of that. And now, like a former, uh, the uh, special prosecutor, uh, former U.S. attorney in Chicago, was appointed by a judge six months ago to review the evidence against Jesse Smollett and consider filing new charges. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that... You know, we, I, I was one of those from the beginning who questioned whether or not what um, Jussie Smollett was saying was true. And we found out, at least by all accounts, it seems as if he was lying. So let's agree to the fact that he was actually lying. Now, how, another, how, now how, special... How, 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 hold up. First of all, we can't agree to the fact that he was lying because we don't know that. Right. Well... By, no. by, by, all the, by all the evidence that we've seen, at least the people that he accused of the crime... Well, well hold up, wait a minute, hold up. We talk about Trump lying, and we say well, give him benefit of the see, doubt. But we don't have to do the Bloomberg and talk about Trump here. No, I'm, it, I'm not doing the Bloomberg. What I'm, saying, what I'm saying is we can't... How, how can we agree that Jesse Smollett is lying? Okay. How? Well, we don't have to agree. I'll say that Jesse Smollett Based on what? Based on the fact that people that he accused of lying, I mean, I'm sorry, the people that he actually um, identified as the ones who assaulted him right. were the ones that the police department, or at least the prosecutor said, could well, they, no, they weren't. Could they be lying? They very well could be, yeah, but, that, that, but that, we that, have to go with the evidence that we have. No, right. actually, so, no, no, actually, no. no, actually, we don't. Well, and well, I, I mean, think... Well, hold up. We earlier talked about the case of Amy Klobuchar when she was a district yeah. attorney where there was no physical evidence there were no eyewitnesses. There was no DNA. So what you're saying is we are to believe the cops. Well, what, what, what I'm saying is is that we still have, let's say you're, all of you all are right, that maybe it really did happen. No, 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 no. We're well, not saying no one's right. Okay. Well, no, I'm not saying that Justice Smollett told the truth. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying Justice Smollett lied. What I'm saying is you said let's all agree that he lied. We can't. Okay. Well, we, we don't have to agree that he, that he lied, but... It seems as if that's exactly what he did. If not, that means that there are still two white MAGA-loving Trump supporters roaming the street of streets of Chicago somewhere. Maybe they're there. I don't know. I think probably part of the part of um, Smollett's problem is is that how he handled it even after. Um, he was loud, if you will. You know, he came out and he made the statement. He was very defiant, you know, and he had people out there defending him. I actually agree with you that this very well could be a, you know, a celebrity case, someone trying to build their name off of a celebrity case. But there were, there were lots of resources that Chicago used to investigate something that we can just say was never actually proven, and there seems to be more evidence pointing to his guilt than his actual um, innocence as far as what he's claiming. Here was interesting, Mustafa, uh, that the special prosecutor used some of the same cops who were involved with the initial investigation into his. That, to me, makes no sense. To me, that if you wanted to run a clean case, you would say, I'm not going to use any police officers who were involved in the first investigation and have a new set of officers essentially go back, double-check their work, re-interview people as well. Right. That, that, that's, to me, how you should have run this. Yeah, most definitely. You, you go out 
get the new evidence because evidently if you're going to bring a case back again after the former person said, well, there's not enough here for us to do something, then you must be bringing some new information in. And we should also remind ourselves that supposedly in our country you are innocent until proven right. guilty. It, right. So that should be the starting point from, from where we're at. Let's talk about this here, of course. Uh, that is uh, this last story. Uh, you talk about the Trump Department of Justice, how uh, they are putting their thumb on the scale. Roger Stone was convicted by a federal court in Florida of lying to Congress when it came to testimony regarding Donald Trump. He was convicted. Prosecutors went to court yesterday recommending seven to nine years in prison for Roger Stone. Then all of a sudden, the William Barr, first of all, then all of a sudden Donald Trump tweeted this was a miscarriage of justice. Then today, the William Barr led Department of Justice announced they were going to seek a lower sentence for Roger Stone. What has now happened? Now, they claim that decision was made before the Trump tweet went out, which is sort of weird because why would attorneys go to court asking for seven to nine years if the Department of Justice had already said they were going to actually pursue something lower? Hmm. Now, what has happened? All four of the prosecutors, including the assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, have all quit. Aaron Zelensky worked in Robert Mueller's office. He has withdrawn from the case, resigned as special assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia. Okay? The other prosecutors have all quit. Jonathan Kravis announced in a court filing he has resigned as assistant U.S. attorney. Adam Jed also withdrew from the case. And the fourth prosecutor, Michael Morando, withdrawn from the case as well. This is a tweet from Mike Scarcella. DOJ's new sentencing memo was signed only by John Crabb Jr., acting head of the criminal division at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. Crabb is a longtime career prosecutor. Melody, what does that tell you? That four career prosecutors in the Department of Justice quit over what they see as a heavy hand from William Barr and Department of Justice. Seems like they were dissatisfied with what the Department of Justice did. You know, Should I, DOJ have done it? I, I don't even know. Well, this is, this is kind of new. I don't even know what they're proposing. What are they proposing as far as his sentence? No, they, like I said, they proposed that Roger Stone be sentenced seven to nine years in federal prison for what he did. And the Department of Justice is saying that he should get what? Department of Justice... They, know, they notify the court that they'll be pursuing a lower sentence. Oh, than the I, seven to nine. Even the, though the four prosecutors work for the Department of Justice. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, that's, I mean that's, that's probably a little inside baseball. Um, if they, they are unhappy with how... Inside, inside baseball? baseball? Well, I'm saying that they, if they're unhappy with how their department is conducting an investigation, whether it was Rogers... No, 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 no. Okay, I, I think you missed something here. They secured the conviction... Okay. Of Roger Stone. Right. They're the ones who were trying and the case. And now they're unhappy with the no, DOJ's no, 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 position? No, 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 no. Listen. They secured the conviction of Roger Stone. Mm -hmm. They submitted to the court that they were going to pursue that they believe that Roger Stone should be sentenced from seven to nine years in prison. They submitted that to the court. Mm -hmm. The Department of Justice indicated after Donald Trump tweeted, this is unfair, oh, we're going to recommend a lower sentence for Roger Stone. So what I'm asking you is, 
should William Barr be interceding where clearly prosecutors who tried the case are recommending something, he's overruling them. Yeah, I, I don't know how common a practice that is. It it's not. Say, it, well, that, I, this don't happen. Well, mm -hmm. I, I don't know if this is a, is a practice where no, the I'm telling you, this don't well, happen. Well, I... I'm just telling you I don't know. So either I'm going to sit on sit on. Well, now you the, know. But I'm this saying this is not but, common practice. But I, I I don't know what the Department of Justice practice is. Do, so you're saying that this is something that the Department of Justice never does? No. You wouldn't have the top level person. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, maybe, maybe not. Me personally, if they, because what it seems as if, which is exactly what I said, they seem to have a problem with the position that the Department of Justice has taken. Have taken. No, they, no, they work for the Department of Justice. Yeah. Well, who is the, their, their problem is that William Barr is trying to protect a Donald Trump crony and wants to lower the sentence. And where does you, where does William? And Barr, that's why they're offended. So where does he work? Where does William Barr work? At the Department of Justice, right? He does. That's what I'm saying. So, it's, so isn't, the, isn't William Barr's position going to be the official position of the Department of Justice or those four attorneys who oh, I actually, are now going? Oh, I actually thought that what happens, Kelly, is you allow your prosecutors to try cases and do their jobs. But it's still the Department of Justice, though. Kelly, I'm saying go it's ahead. not a different department. Yeah, it's we know that, but go ahead. Justice. Kelly, go ahead. Barr is stepping on the toes of his own employees. That's the problem. You do not override the authority of your employees in a district in which you may have jurisdiction in theory, but the whole point of an ASA is to act on behalf of the AG and, and do your job. What's happening right now is the AG is overriding whatever the ASA is doing based off of rules that the AG already has in play. This for the ASA. Keep in mind, Mustafa, this is the same William Barr who purposely cut short the investigation right. of Robert Mueller because he wanted it to be over. Yeah. This is how it played out. Donald Trump called William Barr. Exactly. Or they were in a meeting at the White House. Said, Roger Stone, he's a good guy. I really appreciate how he supported me over the years. It's unfortunate that his sentence is being at the length that it is. Do something Is, is there about anything it. you can do to help me yeah. out? Do and, something and about it. And that is incredibly unethical. It's unethical. Like on every ground, like that does that does not happen. Yeah, I that, mean that does not happen. Me personally, I don't care enough about the Roger Stone case. This is not, if this is not something that the Department of Justice does, and this is going against you know whatever their policy has been in the past. You know, we did criticize William Barr for it, criticize Donald Trump for it. But as far as Roger Stone in this case, whether he gets seven years or whether he gets one year, I don't care. I mean, I but, just don't care. But yeah. Criticize the department. Criticize William Barr. If it, the criticism is warranted, criticize him. Let me tell you something right now, folks. Bottom lines is here. Uh, you have a thug in the White House. You got a thug running the Department of Justice. What you have here is William Barr, uh, of course, uh, who is not serving the interests of the United States of America. He is serving as the attorney for Donald Trump, protecting one of Donald Trump's cronies uh, in Roger Stone. Don't be shocked if they say, if they come in and say, hey, just give him, uh, you know, uh, six months in jail. Here's the saving grace. The federal judge can ignore the White House. That's right. Yeah. The well, federal see, judge can, no, no, it's not, that, it's not like no bigger deal, uh, Malik, because here's the whole issue. You would hope that you have a Department of Justice that is about justice, not protecting the cronies of Donald Trump. That's not the case here. All right, folks, we appreciate everybody who's been on the show today. Uh, New Hampshire, the, all the polls closing in New Hampshire. 
in about 14 minutes. And so uh, I'll be uh, live tweeting some of my thoughts uh, as well. So we'll see what happens, who wins tonight. Again, we still don't know who the hell won Iowa, so frankly, tonight <laughs> is really it's the still? first state to vote. Yeah. Uh, and actually, it truly is the first state to vote because the caucuses, to me, is still a joke, so I don't really care about that. So uh, we'll talk about that tomorrow right here in Roller Martin Unfiltered. Please support us in what we do by going to rollermartinunfiltered.com. Join our Bring the Funk fan club. You can use Cash App, PayPal, or Square. Uh, every dollar you give goes to support this show and what we do. Of course, we want to thank all of you who watched our live stream last night of Susan Taylor's National Cares Mentoring uh, Gala. We're going to be restreaming that uh, this weekend as well, so we look forward to doing that for you. All right, folks, we shall see you tomorrow. I got to go. Help! From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at FisherHomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.